Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Amen. Kevin, you always do such a good job. Sounds like Jesus reading the word right to us. Thank you so much. Well, it is good to see you guys. If you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we always have them available for you on the way into the worship space. Please feel free to go ahead and grab one of those big blue Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word because we know firsthand how having a copy of God's Word, spending time with Him will change your life. But we're going to spend some time today in Matthew chapter 5, just those four verses. But as you turn there, I want to wish all the dads a happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. We are so grateful for the opportunity to celebrate dads. I was talking this week and thinking like, how can we honor dads on Father's Day? You know, we could do donuts for dads, but we do donuts every week. We do like a photo booth. Every dad wants his picture taken. I thought like the best way to honor dads is to not talk about dads on Father's Day. Like, how often do you show up on Father's Day to church and it's like the first time dad's been at church in a long time and you like beg him to come for Father's Day? You show up and they're like, here's five ways to be a better father. Just like what every dad wants. Like my to-do list is long enough at home. I show up at church, get five more things. Like I didn't finish last year's list that the preacher gave me. So we're not going to talk about dads, but we are grateful for dads. Grateful for the guidance that dads give us. It's always uh, such a privilege to honor the good dads that God has given us. They, they serve us well with guidance and wisdom. I know that I'm super grateful for my dad. As I look at my life, so much of who I am and how I live are things that flowed from him. Some like really good things about how to love and care for my family and love the Lord. Some things that I think honestly just drive my wife nuts come from my dad. You guys like go on vacation. Growing up, I was going on vacation. Like we'd be leaving a hotel room after the entire family cleared the room and we checked the room three times over. My dad would do what? Go back into the room and check it one more time under the cushions, under the curtains, everything like that. I got married, started doing that with my wife. It's driving her nuts. She's like, do you not trust me? Like, uh, I guess not. No, I don't. So I go back in. Inevitably, I always find something. Uh, but like, I want to instill like those lessons in my kids too. I have two daughters. I want to instill those lessons in them. So I'm like always learning. Like, how can I love these girls so that I can provide for them? I can protect them. I pr- provide wisdom. So I've been reading a lot about how to be a good dad. And I was reading this story about a dad who had a few daughters. And his first daughter had just grown up and she was old enough to go on her first date where a boy was going to pick her up from the house in his car and take her on a date. And so the dad took his daughter and he sat her down before she went out on the date. And he said, I just want to tell you, honey, like I know guys. I know guys. I know boys. He's going to pick you up at the door and he's going to say, my, you look lovely tonight. But don't worry, I'm not going to worry. And he's going to take you to the car. He's going to open the door for you. He's going to let you sit in. He's going to say, man, I just really grateful for this time that we get to spend together. You are so special to me, but I'm not going to worry. And the dad said to his daughter, and then he's going to take you to the restaurant. And after dinner, he's going to say, let's go for a ride down by the lake. And we can park by the lake and we can watch the moon rise over the lake. But honey, I'm not going to worry. 
I'm not going to worry until he says, why don't you scoot over here and sit next to me? And then I'll start to worry. Do you understand? And the daughter said, yeah, dad, daddy, I understand. And so she got ready. She went on the date and she, uh, the dad stayed up waiting as I guess we all would. And midnight came, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. She didn't come home to the early hours of the morning. She came home and said, daddy, you're not going to believe it. Boys are just like you said. He, he picked me up at the door. He said, wow, you look lovely tonight. But daddy, I know you're not worried. And then he opened the car door for me and said, you're just so special. And I, Daddy, I know you're not worried. And after dinner, just like you thought he would, he said, why don't we drive by down by the lake and watch the moon rise over the water and we can watch it out there. And Daddy, I know you're not worried. And then he said, Daddy, why don't you scoot over here next to me? And I thought of you. And I said, no, you scoot over here next to me and let your dad worry. <laughs> and I tell you that illustration for two reasons. Carissa hates preacher jokes, and I don't use them very often, but it's Father's Day, so I wanted to do that. But also, like, isn't that how we often handle rules? Like, we hear the rules, but we miss the point. We hear the rules, but we miss the point. I think that's the classic example of following the rules, but missing the point. Rules can get confusing. Like, we know they're there for a reason. We know they weren't just thrown at us for no reason. We accept them, we believe them, but how often do we misconstrue them? That's what we're going to look at in our study this morning, how we misunderstand and even misapply the rules that God has given us for life. If you're joining us for the first time, you're joining us at a perfect time. We're really just kind of kicking off a study through what we're calling the Summer on the Mount. We're using this entire summer to study the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It was a sermon that Jesus preached to kind of launch his ministry, to introduce himself to the world that 2,000 years later we're still looking back on and standing in all of the things that God had said. That Jesus went up on this mountain, he invited everyday ordinary people to come listen to him, and he explained to them what life was like in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And then one after another, he extended these invitations to participate in the kingdom of God. And I want us over the course of this summer to sit under this teaching like we were there in the first century listening to Jesus. That if we've grown up with this text and we're really familiar with it, I just kind of want us to clear our minds and ask the Lord to speak to us. Tell us, God, what is it like to live life in the kingdom of God that we don't take for granted, that we think we have this thing figured out, but we're going to be students of the word, hearing like it's the very first time. And then, God, what is it like to accept this invitation that you extend to us every day, ordinary people, some 2,000 years later, to do life in the kingdom of God? of God. And I think if we will sit at God's feet like that, we will see this text from a brand new perspective, that God is calling us to do life with him in his kingdom. But that begs the question, what is the kingdom of God? When we say the kingdom of God, or rather when Jesus says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, those two terms are going to be used interchangeably throughout the text and throughout the gospel of Matthew. What is it that Jesus is talking about? The most simple definition I think I can communicate to convey this idea is the kingdom of God is everywhere the rule and reign of God reaches. And if you've grown up in church or if you know who God is, you hear that and you think, but isn't God sovereign? Like, isn't his reign and rule reach at the ends of the earth? Like, he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. He would say, yes, absolutely, God is sovereign. He is reigning over this earth, but he is also a good and gracious God who allows us in the freedom to forsake him if that's what we want to do. That we can reject his rule over our life. The, the very rule that God gave us to keep us in good standing with him so we can have a relationship with him, he lets us reject it. And that's what we've been doing for all of human history. I mean, God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in the garden, and he gave them what? 
one rule. He said, you can have dominion over the entire earth. You can name the animals. You can work the fields. You can do whatever you want. Just don't go near this one tree, right? Don't eat the fruit that comes from it. Adam, don't carve Eve's initials in it. Just stay away from this one tree. And for two chapters, they stayed away from that tree, really a chapter and a half. They weren't even on the scene for the first part. But two chapters, to turn the page, chapter three, Adam and Eve, they do what? They break the one rule God gave them, and they break the relationship God had with them. And then when God a few generations later, it would start this redemptive process, and he chose the people of Israel. He established them as a nation. He led them out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led them into the wilderness. And the first stop through the wilderness journey is Mount Sinai. And if that sounds familiar, that's because Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, spends time with God. He comes down from Mount Sinai from his time with God, and he has the law, and he passes it on to the people. And this law was intended to protect his people and set them apart and give them a guide so they could honor God with their life. And the law starts with the Ten Commandments. Like, we know the Ten Commandments, right? We've grown up with them. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've grown up with the Ten Commandments. You know, like, have no other gods before me. Make no idols that you would worship something else in the place of God. Uh, what is, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Honor the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your parents. Do not lie, murder, steal, covet, commit adultery, right? Like those are out of order, but those are the Ten Commandments. And God says, if you just do these things and the things that flow from them, they will set you apart from the rest of the world. They will make it obvious that you are my people. And he goes on and he gives more law so the people have clarity about who God is and who he's calling them to be. And the law is pretty interesting. If you ever spend time, I'm sure you're probably doing your devotionals this morning in the book of Leviticus, just kind of standing in all the law of God, right? It's kind of confusing, but it's fascinating at the same time. You're reading the law and you're like, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. You get to some of these obscure laws and you're like, these laws that say like, don't wear clothing with two kinds of material. And we just get a little confused. Okay, like, don't make other gods, don't make idols, don't murder, don't steal. Like, I get that. But, like, we're getting dressed this morning with that law in mind. We're like, man, this, this shirt is, like, part cotton, part whatever, poly. I don't know what they make clothes out of. But they're all mixed thread. Like, we're like, well, how do, how do we honor God when that is, when that is the, the law that he laid out? And there's this other law in the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus, that says when you do make clothes, you should fasten tassels with blue threads on the corner of all your clothes. I'm going to be honest. I don't know why that's there. Like, I don't know what the purpose of the blue thread was. Like, I love blue clothes, wear a lot of blue, but I don't have any clothes with tassels. But that's what the Bible says. And then there's prohibitions against certain kind of foods, foods that we love, like shellfish and pork. Like, it's a steady part of my diet. And so, like, we have the Ten Commandments that we understand why God would give us those Ten Commandments. And there's these other Old Testament laws that are kind of obscure. And we think, like, but how do we honor God and honor those laws? And then if that wasn't enough... If you grew up in church, you probably added rules to the rules. Am I right? Do you ever grow up in a church that maybe they said, like, do not play games with playing cards? Like, I don't understand, but okay. Maybe heard today someone say, like, we don't go to movies. We didn't go to movies growing up because we thought they were evil. We didn't dance. We didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with girls who do. And that was just from my Baptist friends. Don't even get me started on our Catholic friends with their candles and their confessionals and all those other things that we add to the law. The question we have to wrestle with, and the question I want to wrestle with from the Sermon on the Mount today is, how do we honor the reign and rule of God in our lives when it comes to these rules? Because God is a God of order. He didn't give his people a law by accident. He gave them 613 different commandments, and I'm confident 
that when Jesus went up on the mountain to begin to preach the Sermon on the Mount, the crowd that was gathered at his feet started wondering, what is this new teacher going to teach about the Old Testament laws that we grew up with? And they had a lot of questions. So what does Jesus say? He says this. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All right, we're going to go through this pretty quickly, verse by verse. This is the law that the people grew up with. And there's probably two different schools of thought that were gathered there the the first century. They're probably the, the religious leaders. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, these professional Christians. And when Jesus began to talk about the law, they would have loathed the idea of letting the people off the hook from following the law. Because they made a living out of being obedient to the law of God and teaching it to the people. And so they're sitting there thinking, whatever you say, Rabbi, you do not criticize the law that God gave us. That is the law of God. And then the everyday ordinary people that were gathered there in the crowd, they might have, have had, might have had enough self-awareness to know that they had fallen so far short of keeping the law that they were hoping Jesus would abolish the law, that he would ease up some of these rules that they grew up with because they knew they couldn't live up to them. And I think, though we aren't sitting at Jesus' feet in the first century, we might approach the law of God in the very same way. We kind of fall into these two different camps. Maybe some of us, we grew up in church and we had all these laws and all these rules and all these traditions passed down to us, and we hold them as sacred. We might not fully understand them. We don't know the extent of them, but like we just don't want to loosen the law of God. And so like your kid comes home and they come home with a tattoo and you're convinced they're going to go to hell because you're not sure where, but you think somewhere in the Old Testament says something about tattoos. And so you scold them and you weep and you mourn because you think your kid's going to hell, right? Like that's the, the, the religious leader approach to it. There was a law in there somewhere that says something about that. The irony is in doing so, what do we do? We start to idolize the law and break the law, right? And then there's this other school of thought that thinks we should just like do away with it all. And it's the, it's the school of thought that says, let's just follow Jesus. Like we forget that God honors obedience and we use Jesus as a means to justify the life that we want to live. But to be faithful to the text, we always want to see what did Jesus say? Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in one sentence, Jesus speaks to both camps or both school of thoughts on the law. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. The religious leaders that grew up with this Old Testament law, I didn't come to wipe it off. We're going to talk about that. But I also didn't come, you know, I didn't, I came to fulfill it. Like there's a purpose to the law. And so both groups in the crowd would have leaned in to hear what Jesus said next. And he goes on, he says this, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, uh, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. These are the smallest letters of the law. Every single word of the Old Testament law, every word of scripture that was breathed out by God. And here's the thing, I think we have this tendency, even today, to kind of want to pick and choose what part of God's word we want to obey. Like we're quick to pick the parts we're comfortable with, but we want to kind of dismiss or find a way to to get around the parts that make us uncomfortable. What Jesus says is all of God's word is holy and to be honored. So much so, he says in verse 19, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, I don't even know what it means to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I tried to figure that out this week. I'm not really sure, but I'm definitely confident that I don't want to be least in the kingdom of heaven. And I know that we can't simply throw it away because we don't understand it. Then Jesus goes on and he says this in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, now this would have stopped the crowd in their tracks. They're listening to Jesus saying, I did not come to, uh, to, to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill it. They're not sure what that means, but they can kind of track with Jesus. And he says, nothing of the law, no, no, no dot, no tittle, none of the law is going to disappear until everything is fulfilled. So heaven and earth might pass away, but my word will stand forever. Okay, that makes sense. They have a high reverence for God's word in those days. And then he says, you know, you're not going to dismiss it. Okay, we got that. And then he says this shocking statement to the crowd. He says, who, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And this would have shocked everybody. To the everyday ordinary people, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, like they were the most righteous people among God's people. They not only knew the law forwards and backwards, they had it memorized, but they were so passionate about the law that they put guardrails around the law so no one could even get close to breaking the law. And they would take a, a commandment of God, like the, the the fourth commandment that says, honor the Sabbath by keeping it holy. And they would like put all of these restrictions around it. And the Pharisees would say in those days that you could not carry anything that weighed more than a fig on the Sabbath day, or that would be work and you would be breaking the law and dishonoring God. Now that's nowhere in the scripture, how they decided the arbitrary weight of a fig, but that's what they came up with. And so people wouldn't carry, the, the religious leaders, they wouldn't lift anything on those days, so much so that the religious leaders would say that if you were crippled on the Sabbath day, you couldn't use your crutches because picking them up would be like picking up a tool and that would be considered work. And so the crippled people would have to crawl from point A to point B on the Sabbath day. So far, they would say like if your baby was crying on the Sabbath day, you couldn't pick it up and comfort it because that would be work. And so the crowd would hear this and think, man, the religious leaders, they follow the law and then they follow the other laws that they put around the laws to protect the law. Like how can our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? And then the Pharisees would hear this and they would be shocked. And they thought like, how could we be more righteous? Like you're saying, unless we get more righteous, we're not going to get into heaven. How can we get more righteous? Like, how can we make it more strict? And I think that was Jesus' point, to get to this place to realize that they were missing the point, that the point of the law was to point to a person. And the way they were thinking about righteousness, that they could accomplish it on their own, was wrong all along, that the point of the law was to point to a person. If, I, if you would, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. You can leave a finger in Matthew. We might come back to it. We may not. Romans chapter 3, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church gathered in the first century city of Rome. It's a pretty detailed, pretty theologically rich, intense letter. And if you'll allow me to use it to support our sermon uh, study throughout the summer, we'll just kind of bounce back and forth to it. If, if you grumble and complain, we will preach through it next year, and it'll probably take us two years. So let's just look at snippets of Romans and see what Paul says. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 19. He says, now, he says, now that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, 
No human being will be justified in his sight through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, now let's leave that up for just a second, if you would, Savannah. So as Paul's describing this to the church in Rome, he's writing this to some people that might have some Jewish background, but largely a Gentile background, and they're trying to figure out, as followers of Jesus, so after the Sermon on the Mount is over, after the life of Jesus, after he lived a perfect life under the law to satisfy the requirement of the law, the righteous requirement of the law, when he was nailed to a cross, when he was buried in a tomb, when he was raised from the dead, when he launched his church, they're still trying to figure out how does this Old Testament law, these Old Testament scriptures that have been around longer than we've been alive, how do they relate to us in the New Testament church? And Paul says, basically, the law proves that we can't live up to God's expectation. That no matter how hard we try, we cannot live up to, by our effort, God's standard for his people. In fact, he goes so far to say, he says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. And it's like this law that God gave us to protect us, to set us apart, to guide us into righteousness, that we might be holy as he is holy. Instead of using it for the purpose for which God gave it to us, we used it as like a, like giving us good ideas on how to sin. I remember when I was in college, I went to a small Bible college uh, a long time ago, and we were sitting in freshman orientation, and I was brand new to, to, to college, obviously, I was 18 years old, and I was sitting in this orientation, they were going through like one thing after another, they kind of gave us the tour of the school, they brought us all into the student union building, and they handed out the student handbook, and it was a pretty thick handbook, I mean, the school was only this big, but the handbook was this big, and we're flipping through it, and this lady who, I don't even know what her job was, but she sat up there, she had her glass is on and she's reading the handbook rule by rule. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to take forever. You know, you have to wear pants to class. I was like, okay, that's fine. I got scrawny legs. I'll wear pants anyway. You know, you have to be in chapel or you don't, you know, get an excused absence. And like these things are like going on. But she gets into some of the more obscure rules. And I remember her reading the, the big building in our school is called the Chapman Center. And in the rule book, it said, you are not allowed to climb on the roof of the Chapman Center. And I thought, I never thought about that. <laughs> Wonder why anyone would want to climb on the roof of the Chapman Center. And then it said, unless you turn the page, I kid you not, you shall not climb on the roof of the Chapman Center and you shall not jump from the roof of the Chapman Center to the roof of the Student Union Building or from the Student Union Building into the pool. And I thought, I know what I'm going to do as soon as we're done here. I never thought about it before. Now I, I saw how high it was and I got scared and I backed out and I watched my friends do it instead. But nonetheless, that's kind of what... God, or Paul is saying, like God gives us this law for your protection to make you live a holy life or to give you a clear guide on who, who God's called you to be. And instead of using it to honor God, we've looked through the law like, well, that's a good idea. That sounds like fun. I think I'll try that when I leave church. He says, no one can live up to the righteous requirement of the law. So the law that was given to guide us to God ultimately convicts us of our sin. But then it goes on, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And this is, is good news. So what Paul has just said is the law that God gave us to guide us into a good relationship with God, we used against God for our own pleasure. But now the righteousness of God 
has been manifested. It's been made known. It's been demonstrated apart from the law. What does he mean? He says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ who believes. God gives us another way to righteousness. We can live up to the letter of the law or we can put our faith in Jesus. That Jesus manifested the righteousness of the law. And what he's saying is that everything in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, points to the person in the work of Jesus. That the law was given to show us that we cannot live up to God's standard, but to point us to the person who could and did. And here's what I mean. We're going to go through this really quickly. We could spend an entire series on this. But think about this. God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and they had one rule, right? Don't touch the tree. Don't eat of the tree. Don't touch the tree. Don't even walk too close to the tree. They break the law. And they get so ashamed of their sin the moment they eat of the fruit of the tree that they take fig leaves and they sew them together. They try to cover, they're aware all of a sudden that they're naked. They try to cover the shame of their sin. It was the first man-made religion. The first time that their effort was to try to cover the consequences of their sin. But God sees right through it. So he sees Adam and Eve and he sees the servant. He gets them together and kind of, kind of scolds him. He says, I told you, the one thing you could not do would be to eat from the tree of good and evil. And now there will be consequences. And he basically banishes Satan, but he's telling Adam and Eve about the pain and the suffering that they would endure for all of human history because of their sin. But in that moment, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, or Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, he gives what we call the proto-euangelion. It's the very first gospel that from Eve's offspring, even though she sinned, would come one who would crush Satan and redeem her. And then he's about to kick him out of the garden. But before he does, God kills an animal and creates clothing for Adam and Eve. And it's the first time that blood was shed for the covering of sin. And a few generations later, the people of God find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And God is trying to get uh, Pharaoh to let his people go. And so he's afflicting the people of Egypt who are afflicting the people of God with all of these different plagues. And finally, the tenth and final plague, he sends the death angel throughout Egypt to kill the firstborn of every Egyptian so that they would be so afflicted that they would let Israel go. But to protect God's people, God says, you're to, you're to kill a lamb and to put the, lamb, the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the house. So the death angels, he's passing through Egypt, will pass over my people. And then a few uh, years later, the book of Leviticus was being written. God would institute the sacrificial system. And in Leviticus chapter 16 would be the day of atonement. He would kind of lay out for the people. There would be this tabernacle, which would become a, a temple. And it would have multiple rooms. And there would be this outer court. People would wash before they go in. They'd get in this other room and this other room and this other room. And finally, get to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of God was, which had the, the, the Ten Commandments in it. And once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would slay a lamb and he would take the blood. He would cover it over the broken commandments of God to, to, to roll back the sin of the people. And all through scripture, you see these things so that when Jesus shows up on the scene and his cousin John the Baptist sees him coming, he looks at Jesus and he says, behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, whose blood would be shed to cover once and for all our sins. So the whole system is set up to point to Jesus, all of the law. And then the prophets come along, and they're constantly pointing to Jesus. Isaiah shows up, and Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 53, says, He will be pierced for our transgressions, he'll be crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we will be healed. 
And David, King David would come along in Psalm 22. He would say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he would go on to describe the crucifixion a few hundred years before the Persians would even create crucifixion as a form of execution, pointing to the person in the work of Jesus. And I'll tell you, this is the good news. That we realize when we read the Old Testament law, it's constantly pointing us to Jesus because it is both a map and a mirror. It's a map to live a holy life, but it is a mirror to show us how far short we fall of God's perfect standard. And so Paul goes on in Romans chapter 3 verse 22, he says, for there's no distinction. For clarity, he says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus, that his blood redeemed us. It bought us back from the penalty of our sin, whom God put forward as the propitiation by his blood. That word is just a Bible word that means payment that satisfies, that God put forward Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins, to be received by us by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We think about this all the time. I hear this all the time. Why couldn't God just forgive sins? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? And I'll hear people say, I can forgive people all the time. And it's like, yeah, it's easy for you and I to forgive people because we're not holy right? We're not perfect. We can forgive people easily because we know we need forgiveness because we have sinned against people. But God would not be just if he just looked over sin. It'd be like if we had a judge today and you had a daughter and she'd been raped and murdered and your case goes before a judge and the judge has all this evidence presented to him and the guy is sitting right there, the offender is sitting right there and he's guilty and all of the evidence points to him and the judge says, we know you've done this, but you know, you look sorry, so we're just going to let you go. You say, you are not a just judge. You need to get off your bench. We have no confidence in you. So it would be if the King of Kings and Lord of Lords just let us go from our sins. And so he puts forward his own son to be the payment that satisfies. Paul goes on in Romans 3.31, he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Because if we set the law of God aside, we we forget that we need Jesus. And then he skips ahead in Romans chapter 8, and he provides, it's like Paul's writing, and he kind of circles back and he provides some clarity. He says, for God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. Paul says, for God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. He sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh in order the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So what do we do with this text? I know we've covered a lot of ground. There are only four verses in Matthew. You looked ahead, you thought, man, we're getting off easy today. And half of Romans is unpacked. But I want us to really think about this because my guess is many of us have grown up with at least some understanding of the law. 
We've grown up with some understanding of the Ten Commandments and the laws that follow. We've grown up with some kind of tradition that has put rules around the rules. And we wonder, how can we honor God, the reign and rule of God in our life, and handle these rules? Because there's this part of us that knows we can't live up to the rules. So do we have to live up to the letter of every law in order to be in good standing with Jesus? Well, the answer is no, because Jesus is our righteousness. He fulfilled the law by living under the law and satisfying the righteous requirement of the law. But in doing so, he invites us to walk according to the Spirit. We're going to spend the rest of the Sermon on the Mount talking about how Jesus fulfilled the law, but he raised the bar on the law. He'll say things like, do not, you've heard that said, do not murder, but I say to you, what? If you hate your brother, you've committed. You've heard that it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a person lustfully to satisfy your own desires, you are committing adultery. And he invites us to walk to a greater righteousness. What does this mean and how do we apply it? I want to tell you honestly, we could probably talk, each of us could talk about where God is speaking to us about how to, to handle the law. But I want to share with you just like a moment of transparency about the lesson that God is teaching me. And it's one of the, the first laws. The fourth commandment says, honor the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Now I know that Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. So like on Saturdays, we don't have to stop and do nothing. If your baby's crying, you can pick her up and, and, and you know, console her. If you need to carry something, you can. But the principle of the Sabbath certainly still stands true that God wants a Sabbath rest for his people. And I know that, and it makes a lot of sense, but if I were honest, and I'll step back in case lightning strikes, that seems dumb to me. I'm just being honest. Any of the rules of God seem kind of dumb? Like the Sabbath rule seems kind of dumb to me because who has time to set aside one-seventh of your week for rest? Like, we're all so busy. We have work, and we have families, and we have church. And the truth is, like, some of you guys use Sunday as your Sabbath rest. It shouldn't be. Like, you should show up and worship, but you should also be serving. There's nothing restful about Sunday for people who serve, right? We get here early. We stay late. We work hard while we're here. I was thinking about it, like, how do we honor God with the Sabbath? Why do we have to? And uh, I know you guys think preachers like work one day a week, right? Like how hard is it to stand up and talk about Jesus for 30 minutes? Well, you guys don't talk about Jesus most of the week, so you wouldn't know. But nonetheless, there's a lot more to this job. Like it's not like labor intensive necessarily. I'm not at like mowing yards all day in the hot, sweaty sun, but like there's, it's never ending. And here's what I mean. It's just like a glimpse. He's like, you can start your day working on a sermon and then spend several hours on the phone with Orange County trying to figure out how to get the air conditioner on, on Sunday, right? And then Someone will, someone will call and say, hey, you know, I accidentally slept with my boyfriend. I accidentally slept with my girlfriend. Should we break up? Like, yes, you should have done that in the first place. You spent an hour counseling. All of that is on the way to the hospital to visit somebody in the hospital. And then you get to the end of the day and you realize you never finished your sermon because you're on the phone with everybody else. And it's just like so many different things. And I love what I do. I love what I do, but it's all consuming. And I realize like so often I go to bed thinking about church and I wake up thinking about church seven days a week. I never feel like I have time to stop. I know many of you feel the same way in your life and your job. And here's the thing I didn't realize. I didn't realize how tired I was getting until we had our second child. And I know what you're thinking, like, oh, you got more tired? Like, no, no, no. Like, I had to stop working for a few days, and I felt refreshed. And I'm holding this baby, and I've had no sleep, and I'm talking to Carissa, and I'm like, I feel really refreshed. 
I haven't thought about work in like three days or four days. I mean, I thought about it, but I didn't do anything about it because I was too busy feeding a baby. And I realized all of a sudden, what is the purpose of the law? It's to remind us that this isn't about us, that God is doing his work. The church didn't miss a beat, and I felt refreshed that God puts these things in place so we will stop and spend time with him. We will do life with him, that his spirit will work through us, that he called me to it, he's going to carry me through it, that God is a good father who wants to spend time with his people. And then I'm going to be honest. I wrote the sermon this week, and I, I, I finished with that point, and I, I felt bad. I was like, at the end of the day, like, what's the purpose of the law? Is it just to make me feel bad? Because I'm going to end this term, I'm going to stand up there and tell them, like, I don't really understand the Sabbath principle, and I realize the importance of it, and to point me to Jesus, and then I just still feel bad about it. Yesterday morning, I was working on my sermon, I was reviewing it, and um, Carissa and our oldest daughter, Brighton, were at ballet. And so it was just me and our younger daughter, Kennedy, and they were there. And she was being like this perfect little girl for 40 minutes. I put her in her little rocking chair and she's going back and forth. I'd fed her. I got her all situated. I set everything up and I was working. And all of a sudden she just started crying. I thought, okay, I can ignore that for a few minutes. And she cried louder and louder. And I was like, all right, Kennedy, why are you crying? So I put the work down and I get up and I walk over to her in the rocking chair. And it is obvious why she's crying. She had a diaper situation going on. I didn't even have to pick her up or smell her to know. It's one of those diaper situations. Like, you know it's a diaper situation because what was supposed to be in the diaper is no longer in the diaper. You know what I'm talking about? It's one of those moments where, like, if, if you have kids, you know. And if you don't have kids yet, that was one of those moments I was like, man, we prayed for this mess. Like, we prayed and pleaded with God to make this possible. And I was like, what am I going to do? I look at my watch. When's your mother going to be home? Okay, another hour. And so I pick her up. And I can't hold her close because she's disgusting. And if you know me at all, no, that's not going to work. I uh, can't have her close to me when she's that dirty. So I, I carry her to the other room. You know, I set her on the changing table. I go draw a bath. I take off her clothes. I take off her dirty diaper. I pick her up and carry her to the bath. And I bathe her. And the whole time she stopped crying. And she just looks up at me. And she's smiling. I'm like... This, this messy situation's kind of fun. Like, I kind of enjoy this all of a sudden. Cleaning her up and get her all clean and smelling good and pick her up. But this time I'm holding her close in a towel. I put her back on the changing table and put brand new diaper on her, brand new clothes, put some lotion on her. And I pick her up and I go sit on the couch and I'm just holding her and she's just looking at me, I'm not crying. And I'm thinking, man, I love being a father. Like, I really love being a father. I hold her close and she smells good. And I thought all of a sudden, like, how are we going to land the sermon tomorrow? It's like, this picture is the perfect picture. Not that you have to be a dad to understand the love of the Father, but like, we found ourselves in a mess that we could not clean up ourselves. No matter how long I left Kennedy sitting there, she could not clean it. I mean, maybe if I left her there for like five or six years, but she wouldn't have survived. And I wasn't going to hold her close because she had done some things that she could not be close to me, but I was more than willing to clean her up. And I was thinking about it like, that's what God does for us. Because our sin is much more egregious than a simple dirty diaper. We were sitting there and we were perfect and we were holy, enjoying the presence of our Father. And we made a mess that we could not clean up on our own. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He 
took us and he cleaned us through the washing of his word and through the washing of his water so that when we are baptized into Christ, all of the filth of our sin is washed away. We're united with him in Christian baptism. And then Paul says this to the church in Corinth, and I think it's, it's the perfect text. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The law of God shows us the righteousness of God. It also hits us upside the head with our own mess, that we have sinned and fallen short of his glory. But full circle, Jesus all the way back, and he's the one who makes us righteous. And here's what I want to think about. Like I, on this Father's Day, think I am a decent dad, certainly room to improve, but God is a perfect heavenly Father. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. Lord, I find it humbling that this week and every week we can read a text that's been preserved through 2,000 years of human history. Father, we might not have grown up under the Old Testament law that the first century crowd would have grown up under, but when we read your perfect word, we know that we we fall far short. Father, my prayer is that no matter where we find ourselves today, if we've never put our faith in Jesus, if we've never been washed clean in Christian baptism, if we've never known what it feels like to be made new in Christ, if we're still sitting in our mess, dirty and disgusting with no way out, that this message that you came to fulfill the law, that everything was written to point to the person and work of Jesus, would motivate us today to take a step in your direction, that we might make you Lord of our life. Father, for many of us, I think we've grown up with the law. We've recognized our sin and our shortcoming. We put our faith in Jesus. I pray that we would not take for granted what a good and gracious Heavenly Father you are. That you loved us so much, you would send your Son to pay the consequences for our sin so that we could enjoy your presence. And that you didn't set before us a list of rules to try to get us to jump through a bunch of hoops, but you set them there to invite us to walk closely with you to watch your Holy Spirit go to work in us and accomplish the law through us because of your power and your righteousness, that we would be holy as you are holy. Father, as we sing these songs and make much of you, we ask that you would make yourself known to us and draw us closer to you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.